My name is my name is Juniper. Yeah. My name is Juniper, and uh, the our verse today is Luke eighteen verses one through eight. And the, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not get God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, will he find faith on earth? That turned off. Thank you, Juniper. Um, it is a special blessing that you came up here to read that today. Um, that one of my kids read the Bible this week, I can now check a box, but, but I just pray that you would, for the rest of your life, cherish that word and continue to read it. All right, brought my phone up here because I was in the middle of a Candy Crush game, so I'm just going to, no. I do have a timer on here so that I don't keep you guys here too far into lunch, which is good. Um... Why don't we start with a prayer? You guys look nervous. So. <sighs> Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing in Mozambique, even this Sunday as we're meeting here, Lord, and all over the earth as you shine through your people, Lord, and you make your power evident in the weakness uh, that we possess, Lord God. And so I just pray that you would do that here today, right now. Send your Holy Spirit. As we look at your word, I pray that your truth would shine through, Lord, and... Um, they would use this time to speak to us and press upon our hearts your will and your truth, Lord. Meet us here today, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there are a couple of questions that we want to answer after reading a parable like that, right? One is, what does an unrighteous judge have to do with God, right? Why are we making that comparison? It seems very strange. The other is, uh, what about this widow and God's elect, and, and how are their cries similar, and, and what are they crying out for? What, what specifically uh, does it mean by injustice in this circumstance? Um, it seems odd that in, in this parable we hear that, that justice is promised. It even talks about it being speedy or without delay, right? Uh, but we seem to see a world that is just pervaded with injustice, right? It seems to be everywhere in every nook and cranny, in every crevice, right? We, we read about the, uh, the shooting at, at the uh, grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and it breaks our heart. The, the ongoing pain in the Ukraine, right? Um, uh, the world seems full of it. And I know that each one of us, like that widow, we, we, we cry out to God because there, there is pain in each one of our own lives, you see. It's there as the result of the fall. The fall was the event through which sin entered this world, but sin is the pandemic, that came because of that event, right? And it was felt immediately, and it has continued uh, to, to, to infect our lives. And it will until Jesus comes again. And I think that example of a pandemic is, is very apt because I think we, we all went through that, right? When, when COVID hit, 
It wasn't just one person's house. It wasn't somewhere in the headlines. It was everywhere. It was all around the world. And it affected every single part of our life. And then we began to feel the weight and pain of that in our own personal families, right? So we saw it in the headlines. It was around the world. But it, you saw the toll it took on family members, some of us even more than others. Uh, I know there are people who lost their lives to it, right? So it was everywhere. And it affected us deeply. And it affected us personally. And so it is with sin as a result of the fall, right? That's why God's people are crying out to him. That's what, that's what the elect are doing in this parable. The widow is the personification of that cry. So let's start off here with, with verse 1. And I, when I was asked to speak, uh, I was very honored. Uh, I was also very nervous. But uh, when I got this parable, I was happy because verse 1, you can't, you can't mess this up. Luke made it real easy for you. He says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if whatever else I say while well, I'm up here and I begin to ramble, as long as I remind you of those two things, I will have gotten this parable right according to Luke. So very thankful for that. Uh, and it is just that. It means that no matter how you parse out the Greek or whatever, it just still you ought always to pray. It's that simple. It's straightforward. You should. Um, but then there's that admonition of not losing heart. So the question is, lose heart in what? What does it mean? Um, and again, like I said, whatever else this passage is about, it's going to be about our hearts, and it's going to be about our resolve, and it's going to be about our steadfastness. So let's begin to look at the two characters in the parable. First, you have the unrighteous judge, right? It says in verse 2, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So one thing we know about this guy immediately is there is nothing in heaven or on earth that are going to persuade him or, or intimidate him, right? Now, he's wrong to not fear God, so this guy already has a, an inaccurate picture of the world, but it gives you something about his mindset, right? Nothing's moving this guy. And we have our second character, the widow. It says, And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Whenever you see a widow in, in the Bible, widows are often the personification of vulnerability, right? They were in this society the most easy to prey upon, and they had the least recourse. So when their husband died, if they had no family to take care of, then they had no way to earn money, right? They, they could not inherit land, and um, uh, they, they weren't going to be in the marketplace per se. Uh, so they had no finance, no, no, no money to exercise influence over a judge like this, right? And uh, she's appearing before the judge in person, right? Which means there's no, there's no male family member to represent her. Like I said, she had no standing in court per se, right? So she just has to come to him with her pleas. So she's alone. She probably is uh, uh, poor and, and without financial recourse, right? Um, so all she has is her cries, and, and she has an adversary. And it says that one, um, uh, this is obviously one she could not overcome, right? Or else why would she be here pleading for the judge to do this for her, right? So she's helpless, and there's someone opposing her, and she cannot overcome that by herself. And it says then, we move on to, uh, to, to this, how this affected the judge here in uh, verses 4 and 5. It says, For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down with her continual coming. So it's funny, uh, people have uh, disagreed over what that kind of uh, wear me down is. Uh, it's, or it says, uh, beat me down or wear me out. Uh, 
it can actually be translated as uh, to give me a black eye, right? To blacken my eye. Because the wear down means to, to shut my eyes. And it could mean to shut them by blackening them, like by hitting them, or simply by wearing me out uh, so that I'm just so tired my eyes shut. So they talk about, does, is this guy, is he afraid of violence or is he afraid of just being annoyed till he can't take it anymore? Either way, he finally does give her what, what she asks for. Um, and he, he gives her justice finally uh, through, through that wearing out. And then Luke 6, we see uh, uh, how this relates to God. And this is Jesus speaking to his audience here. Let's not, let's not forget that. It says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And uh, will, it not, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I had mentioned before uh, the elect. Now, when, when we hear elect in the scriptures, uh, I think we, we, we first go to just kind of that Paul's idea of election, right? We go to the New Testament, we think about elect and what that means, and there's plenty of arguments about that, about election. But here in this, this is, this is Jesus, before he's crucified, speaking to a crowd of Israelites, right? So the elect in this case is Israel. That's who he's speaking to. Um, and it says that uh, they cry to him day and night. Uh, so why would Israel be crying out to God day and night? What, what would be, uh, and they don't give us the, the reason why they, they cry. Well, they, they say they cry out to him for justice, but, but, but what would be on the forefront of their mind? When I think about Israel and at this time, what they might, uh, the main concern would have been, I think about the Roman occupation, right? And all around them in Israel everywhere, there would be uh, injustice, Right? The Roman laws opposed upon them, and, and we, we read about tax collectors and how they were despised because they would exact more than was due them, and there were onerous taxes on them from Rome that they had to pay, and it was a constant contention. There was a different sexual ethic, right, which was to them completely abhorrent because it didn't line up with what God had given them. Uh, there was uh, blasphemy, right? This, this, this people did not honor the same God that they did. In fact, we, we read in Scripture that at one point, um, a man's blood is mingled with pig's blood on the altar. Can, can you think of anything more disgusting to the people of Israel than for that to happen, right? Completely blasphemous, oppressive, and violent people. Right? We know about some of the violence of their capital punishment. We see that in the cross, right? The absolutely brutal, heartbreaking uh, way in which they crucified our Lord. So, so here's this occupying force. They're doing all these horrible things, these things that that seem completely uh, uh, unjust. Uh, the, the, the Israelites may have been asking, why would God allow this? Now, there's been, in Israel's history, uh, a, re a repeating kind of uh, being taken into exile or being dominated by an outside force, and then God sends a deliverer or a judge, right? So they're familiar with this cycle. They, they're familiar with... Uh, Usually it's a sin of Israel, and then God judges them with another nation, and then God delivers them uh, with, 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 uh, through a judge or through, someone, through a mighty act. So they may be thinking to themselves, when will we be delivered from this oppressor, right? That's probably what they're crying out to God for. Deliver us like you've delivered us in the past. Take and, and kick these horrible Romans out of here. So that's, when, when the elect are crying out, that is probably why they are crying out. I would say that today as we read this, we are also the elect of God, right? That, that in the New Testament, after Jesus is crucified, raised again, you see through Paul that, uh, and through Peter that, that, that 
that salvation is spread through, uh, out to the Gentiles as well, and that's why we're all here, right? So as you're reading this, and as you, as you think about the widow's cries for justice, as you think about the uh, Israelites' cries for justice that God's acknowledging here, you can, you can very much think about your own cries to God, right? Like what's on your heart? When I think about why we cry out to God and, and what we feel is unjust, I think that we have ample evidence here probably in our own congregation. We, we think about uh, how hard uh, it can be, how many, how many problems we have in raising our children, but, but infertility can be crushing, right? We think about uh, how hard work is and the demands on us, and, and we don't know if we can make it, but, but unemployment is dehumanizing and horrible and hard, right? We think about how lonely singleness can be and, and, and how unbearable that can be. But then we also think about how sometimes problems in marriage can seem inescapable. Right? So why we cry out to God, the differences uh, may have changed over time, but, but that we cry out to him hasn't changed. That it just feels wrong and unjust, and when will it end? And, and, and so we cry out to God, that remains the same. That, that dynamic hasn't changed throughout time. What's interesting is in this, it's preceded by the unjust judge. Now, I, was, I said one of the questions we have to answer is, what does that unjust judge have to do with God? Well, in this verse 6 here, they're asking a kind of how much more question. It says, if this unjust judge can give justice, how much more would, would God give justice to his elect when they cry out to him? And there's some examples in Scripture. In, in Luke eleven thirteen, we read uh, one of these kind of how much more questions. It says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Right? It's kind of a rhetorical question. It's meant to say, if earthly fathers can give gifts, well, then we'll, can't God? And the answer is supposed to be obvious. Yes, of course He can, right? Um, there's another one. Uh, I don't think it's in the slides, but I'll read it to you. Another kind of um, how much more question in Luke 12, 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither... Uh, they, they have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? Again, the answer is supposed to be obvious, right? People are more valuable than birds. It's supposed to be right there. Unless you're like a real bird lover. I don't know if there are any people here who just absolutely... There, there, are, there are those who love animals. Uh, but yeah, so we're supposed to look at that unjust judge. We're supposed to look at God. And we're supposed to say, even if this guy, um, who we know to be... Uh, and this is, this is part of what the scripture says about this judge. He, he is by himself. There are not other judges with him in this parable. So it may indicate this was a Gentile judge. Because in Jewish courts, you had a multiple judges to ensure the, the, the justness of a verdict, right? So where there's, where there's more people and uh, there's less chance for uh, uh, partiality. But we just have one judge here. So it's probably a Gentile judge. And they were known for their uh, injustice. This, uh, there was a saying that they would pervert justice for a plate of meat, right? So um, we have this judge that, that is to the crowd at the time being heard. This is probably a Gentile judge. They would know, of course, he's unjust. And yet he would grant justice. So how much more will God? So it's supposed to be an obvious answer. God, God will give justice. Absolutely he will. Um, but I, I don't want to stand here and, and not acknowledge the fact that we cry out for things from God and don't, we don't see that immediate result always, right? There, there, there's, there can be somewhat of a disconnect there. Um, because he, it also says in verse 7, uh, and, he, and will not 
God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? It seems like another rhetorical question, like, what, will, will he wait to give them justice? So, so how do we reconcile that, right? How do we, how do we say, uh, it promises that there will be, but I, I cry out to him all the time, and I don't always see an answer to prayer. I've been crying out to him, and it still remains unanswered. That term, delay long over them, is, is, is inter interesting. It's in other places translated as be patient, right? Uh, or uh, be patient with them. In other words, this could be speaking of, of God's patience in waiting to bring ultimate judgment. That he will be bringing it, but that he is waiting that uh, there might be more who repent and come to him before that ultimate justice comes to earth and, and all, are, all are judged and there is no more time to, to come to him. So that is one way to, to read that uh, question about will he delay long over them. So, one of, and this is the first point that I want to bring up. I want to dwell for a second on the character of God and about his justice. So, I just want to think for a second of what it means for God to be totally just. See, a lot of religions may assign that character to God, but we... Here in Christianity, we have a different concept of his perfect justice. See, in other religions, sin is forgotten or expunged or forgiven. But in Christianity, every single sin is paid for, right? So God's perfect justice is never impugned. Sin is not simply not talked about or not looked at or ignored, but is paid for. That ensures God's ultimate justice. And, and you hear the, the elect in this parable and you, uh, crying out for justice, but what, what would it mean for God's justice to be completely meted out? Wouldn't we have to also pay, right? Are we not sinful? And, and if we were given ultimate justice, wouldn't that be bad news for us? Well, the good news is that God is also perfectly merciful, right? So think about that for a second, because when I say that, I'm sure you are already ahead of me in knowing how God's mercy is expressed and how it's balanced against his perfect judgment on the cross, right? His mercy is expressed through, through Jesus' death on the cross. And in Jesus' death on the cross, all of our sins are poured out on him. He drinks that cup of our punishment, right? So God's perfect justice is satisfied. He doesn't impugn himself ever. He is perfectly just. And Jesus pays that price that, that, that we were owed. Now think about this. As Jesus gives this parable to the elect who were there before him, as he's speaking the parable, he knows what justice will cost. As he promises them justice will come, don't you worry. God will not delay. He will give you justice. He will hear your cries. Jesus knows the price he personally will pay to ensure that justice. Right? He's on his way to Israel. He's on his way to lay down his life, to be, to be deserted by his friends, to be betrayed, mocked, and beaten, and nailed on a cross. So when he tells him justice is coming, he also knows the price of that justice. And I want you to just to sit with that as you, as you cry out to God because answers to prayer can seem far away. But his willingness to love us, the, 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 the lengths to which he goes to, to show his mercy and love to us, even offering up his only begotten son on the cross, Right? Those are the things I want to resonate with you as you think about God's character and as you think about the promise he's made to give us that justice. 
And that brings me to my second point, which is we ought to remain faithful in prayer. And what does that look like? The widow came and came and came again until the judge was finally worn down, right? And, and in this parable, her, her cries to the judge are, are, are analogous to our cries to God. So I want to I acknowledge people in this room who have been praying for something for a very, very, very long time and it hasn't happened yet, right? That can be overwhelming. That can cause us to want to give up, to lose that faithfulness and that steadfastness. I, I want to think for a second on what God has done to help us in our, our weakness in that situation. And in, in when we are worn down with crying out. Because in the parable, the judge gets worn down. It doesn't mention the widow ever does. But I know that we do, right? I know I do. In Romans 8.26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right? So as the parable says, we ought always to pray, but, but we also know from Romans that we are not on our own in that praying. That it's not 100% on our shoulders, right? That when we are weak and that when we can no longer find the words, it might be that we can't find the words because we are so overwhelmed by our circumstances, nothing comes out, right? That whatever pain and whatever uh, trials are weighing upon us, we can't find the words to pray, then we're dumbfounded that the Spirit will come he knows your heart better than you know yourself. And he can pray for you and intercede for you. It could be that we're worn out. Maybe we're praying for an unrepentant child to come back, finally to turn their hearts and, 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 and reach out to the Lord. And that's been our prayer since they were a baby. And we're still praying it for them. And it hasn't happened yet. But, but when we can't bear to hear the words come out of our mouth again, the Holy Spirit can be there and can pray and intercede for us. And I want you to think for a second about the way in which the Trinity operates in that prayer, right? I talked about Jesus and his, his death on the cross and his paying for our sins. It's that sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us because Jesus has paid the price to cleanse us of our sins. And so what does the Holy Spirit come and do but then enables us as we pray to God the Father? You see, it's all three members of the Trinity at work every time you sit down and pray. I think that's beautiful, right? That God, in his, his perfect Trinitarian relationship, this blessed union, invites us in to participate. He not only admonishes us and, and asks us and tells us we ought never to stop praying, but then he gives us the power to pray to him, made possible by the sacrifice of his son, right? It's just, it's just a, a beautiful picture that we're not alone in that. Not like the widow. See, that's a, that's a big difference between us and the widow in this. She has no advocate. She has an adversary she cannot overcome and she, she pleads to the judge, but, but we have a helper and an advocate. So in that way, we're not like the widow. So this comes to a part where I want to give you some practical advice. Now, the rest of the stuff with Scripture, these are just examples from my life. So as Tim says all the time, uh, eat the fish, leave the bones. If this doesn't help you, that's okay. This is my personal uh, experience. But I would say, if you want to be faithful in prayer, Pick a time. And there is no time that is more holy than another. 6 a.m. is as holy as 6 p.m. But as you've probably heard, most people tell you that getting up in the morning, praying first thing, is the best thing to do. 
I find that to be true in my life. Um, mostly because when I get up in the morning, no one else is awake yet. Right? And I have a dark house, and I'm not bothered by anybody. I haven't answered any emails or seen any texts. Nothing else about the world weighing on my mind so much that morning. Now listen, we could, have, we could be going through trials such that when you wake up, it's the first thing on your mind. But still, the morning is really when I'm most ready to focus on that. I would also say, um, make sure that that time is manageable. If after this sermon, you're like, all right, that guy went on forever, but I should, I should pray, right? I'll put my alarm on for 4 o'clock in the morning. If that's not realistic, if you've never gotten up at 4 o'clock in the morning for anything, that's probably not a manageable time for you. Uh, so just pick one that is. And if you do decide, I'm going to get up just half an hour early than normal, so it doesn't impinge on the rest of my regular schedule. I'm going to get half an hour early. I'm going to devote that to prayer. That's terrific. It might mean you have to go to bed half an hour earlier, right? Because that's just math. You know what I mean? If you're going to lose half an hour of sleep on one end, you've got to make sure it's on the other. So it becomes another practice that you have to build into your life, right? Making sure that you have enough sleep so you can get up and so you can pray, so you have that time. I'd also say uh, pick a place where focus isn't an issue, right? Um, I like to pray in that empty house in the morning, and I, I have to pace, right? If I kneel down in that dark house in the morning on that couch, I will go to sleep, right? <laughs> Good, I'm not the only one. So I pace. I walk. I have, a, I have a route in my house. We have a galley kitchen. I walk from there back to the sofa and then back again because as long as I'm walking, I'm not going to fall asleep. And you know what else I do is I, I whisper my prayers very quietly. I don't want to wake anybody up. But if I'm using my body along with my mind while I'm praying, it really helps me to focus. If I stay there and I, I'm, I'm silent, I'm just praying in my mind, you know, God bless you, those people who are that focused, but I drift, right? I think about maybe TV I was watching the night before, or I think about stuff I got to do at work when I get in, or house repairs or something. You know? so, but when I'm talking, it, it really kind of focuses my thoughts as well. I would say, by the way, that works with Scripture. If you're reading Scripture, uh, try reading it out loud, too. Keeps your mind from wandering. Just gets your whole being and focus on one thing. Finally, I'll say about prayer, be confident that the Holy Spirit is enabling you and is present as you are praying. Okay? I will tell you just practically in my own life, there was a time not too long ago, about a year ago, when I had lost my job. Right? There, there, was, there was a while when I did not know where the next job was coming from. And I remember waking up at like 3 in the morning, and the only thought in my mind instantly was, I don't know where the next paycheck's coming from. I don't know how we're going to pay for anything when, when our savings runs out, right? And it'd be hard to go back to sleep. Well, what I did was, I just rehearsed what I knew about the Lord, right? That was my prayer at that moment, about who God was, that he loved me, that he's adopted me. Jesus came, was incarnate. He, he had a life of ministry. He died on the cross for my sins, and I'm saved. Like, I repeated the things I knew to be true because of the things that I was worried about that I didn't know, like where my next job would come, if we would lose the house, things like that, that, that are in the future that I don't know to be true, were plaguing me, and I just repeated and dwelled on things I knew to be true. To be honest, I was able to go back to sleep, right? It's not a cure-all. It's not an incantation. So for some of you, that's not going to work. I'm just giving you an example of how, when I was troubled, I prayed, and I really believe the Holy Spirit came and ministered to me in that moment. How he will minister to you, I don't know, but I just want you to have confidence that he will. And finally, it brings me to my last point. That those are the sweetest words in any sermon, aren't they? My last point. So, 
We've talked about the character of God. We've talked a little bit about being faithful in prayer. And now, finally, I want to talk about eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord and his kingdom. The final verse in this parable is, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I want to put this in context. You see, I don't know the chronological events that all these sayings happened, but I know how Luke wrote them down, and I know that Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same one I've been talking about, right? And Luke, in the end of chapter 17, right before chapter 18, where he starts this parable, we have the Pharisees asking Jesus about the coming of the kingdom of God. So, um, here in Luke 17, 20 through 21, being asked, this is Jesus being asked, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So this is just to set the context. As you're reading through this, Luke has said, listen, they're asking him about the coming of the kingdom of God. And then here's a parable. Well, they're joined. And you can see that because it says here in verse, uh, in Luke, verse, uh, Luke 18, 8, right? That he ends it with, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So he's referencing again the coming of the Son of Man and, and the end of all things. That ties right back into this justice he was talking about earlier too, right? This ultimate justice. It's, it is difficult though when we read, will, will he give justice to them speedily? Again, it's one of those rhetorical questions. Like, of course he will, right? Speedy justice. But how are we supposed to understand that, right? Because this parable was 2,000 years ago, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Well, how am I supposed to hold these two things in tension? D justice is speedy, and it's been 2,000 years since, since he said that, right? So, I want to talk about two truths we have to hold in tension when we're talking about the coming of the kingdom. James, chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right? There's the tension right there, right? He's telling them, be patient, and it's at hand. Well, what, what does that mean, right? What do you mean I have to wait, but it's right here? So just the, there, there's that. You have to hold those two things in tension. Let me just address that term speedily. I, I don't like the way it feels in my mouth either. That's a really weird, I've never used the, that particular uh, conjugation, speedily, but it's there. And uh, so there's two views on what that could possibly mean. Um, again, at the very end of, of, of chapter 17 in Luke, right before the parable begins, he says this. Luke 17, 26 through 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed all of them. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So... Luke records Jesus saying that, right? That judgment came suddenly on these people. And then he gives you the parable of the unjust judge and the widow where he says that, that justice will be delivered speedily. It might mean that uh, when he says speedily, that he means it'll happen suddenly. Not that it's going to happen now, but that when it happens, it will happen quickly. 
There's another possible interpretation when you think about speedy in that, in that context, and that is with Peter. Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses nine, uh, 8 through 9 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it may be about our perception of time as well. That to the Lord, this justice is coming speedily. It just doesn't feel that way to us, right? Also notice, as I said earlier, that he does not delay long over them. It means he might be patient for them. And we see here in Peter why he might be patient, right? That all should reach repentance. And though the exact timing of when this ultimate justice will come. The justice we long for, that we see in this world, pervasive everywhere, that we say this isn't right, it's not the way it should be, and God says, you are right, I will come and I will mend the broken things, and I will make whole what is, what is missing. We don't know what time it will be. But it, it just seems as though things aren't right in this world, right? And I think that that, that feeling is, is right, is true, is is appropriate. C.S. Lewis says something. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud, Probably, earthly pleasure, pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never get it snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press toward that country and to help others do the same. C.S. Lewis understood. He understood that that coming kingdom, that thing that will right all wrongs. And we feel it. We feel it when we look out in the world and we say, it shouldn't be this way, right? And you're right, it shouldn't be. And so I want to finally look at one last promise of God about the coming of the Son of Man, about the kingdom of God, about the way things should be, right? Uh, I'm talking a lot about kind of, kind of eschatological, or that's like a 50-cent word for saying end of times, right? I don't want to tell you that God doesn't answer prayers immediately. He does. You know, I did find a job, and the prayer team was praying for me, so that was an answered prayer. Uh, about a year before that, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a melanoma. And really, that's the best kind of cancer to get, guys. If you're going to get it, I suggest that one, because it was just one surgery. I didn't have to do radiation or chemo or anything. They got most of it. They took a lot more off than I thought they were going to. That was a surprise, right? But it was an answered prayer. They tested the lymph nodes. It didn't spread anywhere in my body. I count that as an answered prayer. I count my new job as an answered prayer. So I'm not telling you that God doesn't answer our prayers until he comes back again. That's not the point. What I'm saying is as many prayers as he answers, we will still look out on this world and we will still see injustice and pain and suffering, right? So when will that end? When will the cries stop? When, when will all of it be set right? Right? Revelation 21 Three through five. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that's where it's all answered. Interpret speedy however you want, right? Delay long however you want. That's the ultimate answer. When we cry out, when, when they cried out, when we cry out, it's, it's that longing for this, for it all to be set right, for that time when every tear will be wiped away, right? Will there be no more pain and no more mourning? So, if I can wrap this all up, if I can tie in what I've been talking about from the beginning to the end, it's this. I pray that for you and for me that this hope will find us in our times of need, right? As we pray. We don't know how that immediate prayer, that, that healing or that, that request for a job or, or, or that wayward child to come back, we don't know when those are going to be answered immediately, but we do know that one day the pain will stop, right? That God will bring healing. We also talked about the price it cost him for us to enter into that kingdom. So let that love that Jesus showed on the cross, let this promise that he makes to us in Revelation gird you up and encourage you as you pray that you would not lose faith so that when he does come back, he will find us faithful. Because I guarantee he is faithful. I trust in his character. He is coming back. And when he comes back, will he find that we've been faithful? Right? I don't chastise you thinking, oh, you guys, giving up in your pain. Right? I wouldn't do that. No, what I'm saying is we want to give up, right? It feels hard. So look to these scriptures. Like I did when I woke up in the middle of the night and I just prayed what I knew to be true about Jesus. Let that gird you up in your weakness. Let that encourage you because you will feel weak. But his Holy Spirit is there to help you pray. Don't give up in that praying. Let these words and revelation give you hope and hopelessness. And with that, I would like to Pray a prayer over you guys before we take our communion and we remember that sacrifice that Jesus made that made all this hope possible.